And I see a lot of companies are just like, well, we'll just look at what competitors are doing and then price to that. And look, there's only three ways to grow a software company, acquisition, monetization, retention. And I don't know anybody that would outsource their acquisition strategy to their competitor competition's CEO, right? So why would you do that with your pricing? Hey, Dan, happy new year. Great to happy see you. Happy new year, guys. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Awesome, Dan. Let's kick right into it. Tell us a little bit about your career and how did you get into tech? Oh, man. I graduated high school in 99. And if you recall what those years were like, that was peak dot-com mania. So, you know, Dan, who's good at math and science, taking AP comp sci courses in high school, well, I'm going to go get myself a computer engineering degree and be multimillionaire by 24 because that was the MO. I was like, why even actually the question there was why even bother going to college? Like just start you know, yeah. coding and code up a website. Who cares if any customers actually join? You're, you're going to sell it to somebody. So that was in the water. So it was pretty much fait accompli that I was going to be in tech. I think just by the fact of my the time of my birth and what was in the atmosphere at the time. Uh, but yeah, I've been in the tech space my entire career. I graduated in 03, which let's just say 03, very different than 2000, 2001 in terms of a tech economy. But I've managed to hang on through a couple of severe recessions and whatever the hell 2023 was as well. So wasn't my first rodeo to see a downtrend in the tech world, but yeah, I've been in software space, both on the value creation size as an engineer and product management. And now I help companies with pricing and packaging. Man, that's awesome. Uh, 2023, as you said, God knows what that was and we can come back to that. But tell us a little more about your firm. That too about pricing. So how did that come about? Yeah, I was, like I said, I've been in tech my whole career and I always had this idea I would start my own company and before I started, I was in the product management, product strategy world side of it. So I'd always thought like I'd start a product company, but I'm a little too, maybe say pessimistic or pragmatic, however you want to phrase it. I've, you know, they're entrepreneurs who have to take the thousand swords of everyone telling them that their idea won't work. Well, I don't need the other people telling me my ideas won't work. I'm happy to put a thousand swords in them myself. So never found a product that I was willing to sacrifice my life for. But after I went through a couple of leadership experiences, I took a bit of a career sabbatical, went and traveled around the world for a year and a half, trying to figure out what the next step of my life is. And I was like, well, it's never going to get easier to start a company. I don't have a product idea, but I believe in myself. So let me see if I can make it on my own consulting and that's how it, the genesis I decided I would go off and try to help other companies avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made and that I saw. And that started as a six month experiment. And here I am five years later. So it seems to have been moderately successful. I don't know if it's a raging success, but I'm still here. Considering you retired at 24 after you made all your millions in the early dot com space, you don't need to make too much money. No, no need to be greedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pricing is one of those hot topics, man. I don't know if you can ever get it right. So what are some of the most common mistakes you notice when it comes to pricing in the early stage of sales businesses? Mm. How much time do we have? Things. Look, I think the number one thing is when it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge determines your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. I am constantly amazed when I go and help companies how 
difficult it is to get an answer to the question is, who is your customer and why do they buy from you? And you'd think that would just be swimming in the water, but it's really difficult for whatever reason for a lot of companies to really identify who they sell to and why those people value the product and other people don't. And there's a lot of arguments I've seen over my years in product management, product strategy over, hey, we should build this feature or we should build that feature. When really a lot of those arguments are there in the atmosphere because nobody's had the up level conversation of who are we really trying to serve? You know, like feature A might be perfect for customer A, feature B might be perfect for customer B. Which one are we really trying to make successful? Because you can't be everything to everyone. One's down in the trenches fighting over their favorite feature when really no one has had that conversation at the high level. And we don't build average products because there's no average person. Similarly, there's no average price. And so really helping companies think through who are you going to be for and why are you going to be better than their, their next better alternative? And I think the early stages, one way that this plays out is like a lot of unhealthy analogies are made by startup leaders to Fortune 500 companies. Well, Amazon does X. Well, Apple does X. Microsoft does X. Yeah, but they're $2 trillion market cap companies. And they didn't get there. It's like they've got 10,000 companies of your size inside of them all trying to figure out little problems, right? So there's this, I think, fallacy by analogy, like, oh, well, we can do everything because these Fortune 500 companies do it. If you look at the very successful companies, Amazon, for example, Jeff Bezos, like he only sold books. Now it's the everything store. And I think that was the long-term vision, but hey, there's a reason why he chose, like, we're going to be attack books first because of the strategic advantage it has of infinite shelf space and non-perishable inventory and all the other logistical benefits you could get there and made a very distinct choice. Elon Musk, very similar with Tesla. He made a decision early on to build the Tesla Roadster. Why? Because zero to 60 off the line speed that you could take to the track and beat your friends, Ferraris and Porsches mattered. And that was the only thing that mattered. Those uh, super rich folks who were trying to beat their friends, Lamborghinis, they didn't care that there was a nationwide network of charging stations. But over time, he was able to, he was able to build that proof point, understanding that market at a high price point, and then gradually work his way down with the Tesla Model S and then the Model 3 and all the uh, infrastructure, et cetera, that had to get built up over time to, to see that happen. And so there's a what I'm painting picture here is there's a, a natural evolution of your pricing, packaging, and product and market that has to go hand in hand as you evolve as a company. Yeah, well, one of the things we see a lot of, if you sit down and you talk to an early stage founder and yeah, I've had some success, I've sold some deals, you're like, oh, that's awesome. What are you selling for? Like, how have you determined your pricing? The response I get a lot is, oh, that's about as much as I think anyone would pay. Like the, the default position is, oh, I, I charge $5 a month because I don't think someone would pay me six bucks a month. There's no, no thought patterns to the things you're talking about, who you serve and why they're doing, what it's improving. It's just a, I took a guess. I didn't think they'd pay six bucks. So I just went $5. If you were to start a product and you decided something came, you put your thousand swords in it, thousand and ones get a pass. Yep. I'm going to do it. How do you begin to think about as really early stage when you're really starting to get some proof points of sales, is there certain steps you would take to determine what your initial price would be or early pricing would be? Yeah, it's a great question. 
So I think there's a couple of things I've learned having been on the other side of this uh, fence and actually talking to people who come to me at different stages with pricing challenges. So I think the number one thing is pricing. And when I say pricing, I always mean pricing and packaging. Unless it's absolutely god awful, it's not going to be the thing that kills you early. There's a certain point at which it becomes just a no brainer. Hey, let's optimize this as a giant growth lever we're ignoring, but that's not sub 5 million error. My old CEO, I was head of product. He had a phrase I always liked is like running a startup is like being in a knife fight in a burning building. When you also have cancer, all three are going to kill you. You just have to figure out which one you're going to handle first. And I feel like pricing always rises to either the level of cancer or the burning building. So it's a problem, but it's never the knife fight at the earliest stages. So charge something. Do not give away your product for free. I would say that'd be my first piece of advice. You know, the value is the pleasure center and the price is the pain center of the brain. And we want to make sure we're getting validated feedback from the market. If I just go out and I give my product away and it's like, oh, I've got a, a million users, how much pain? Users aren't paying me anything or for free. I was like, I don't think you have validated market feedback at that point. So I would always recommend charging something. And then I would layer on going back to what I was saying before, it's not what you charge, but it's who and how you charge. So I talked before about the who we charge and thinking really intelligently about who really values this, who are we going after? But how we charge is this element of packaging. And you know, packaging in software world has four elements. There's price metrics. So it's the unit of value I charge customers for. So often that's either API transactions or by seat or by amount of data stored or transferred. Uh, there's a pricing model. So is this a perpetual license transaction like old B2B software used to be? Or is this a subscription? Or is it a pay-as-you-go utility billing model or some hybrid of the two? There's my offer configurations or bundles. So these are the groupings of capabilities I put together so that people are not having to choose from this Chinese menu of 5,000 different features. We've grouped them together. Um, so you often see this in the software world as good, better, best. And then finally is my price structures or price fences. So this is how I charge two different customers, different prices for the same product. We see this all the time in B2C, for example, where I get on the bus, I'm going to pay one fee, but a student or senior citizen is going to pay another fee. Or there's an early bird discount at the diner, for example, right? So a time-based discount. So we usually see those in terms of volume, time, or money. And so thinking through those elements are much more important than the ultimate price level. Now, that always then, okay, Dan, but what about the price level? <laughs> are you just going to totally ignore that? No. Uh, again, it's not the thing that will kill you, but you know there are ways to test that effective. There's a million one ways, probably more than we have time on time for. I find that the earlier either founders or product managers, who's ever leading sort of the product development process, the earlier they can bed a price conversation into the value conversation as they're exploring what to build, the better off they'll be. Uh, why does that matter? So something along the lines of, Hey, Mr. Customer, we're building this new feature. Do you want this? Well, first of all, the answer is always yes. So don't ever ask that as product yeah. manager. They're all, yeah, but you gotta make them trade off something. And so help make them trade off price. Hey, we're building this feature. Oh, that's amazing. I really like it. That's great. We're thinking about monetizing an additional $10 a user. Is that something your company would be interested in purchasing? Is that urgent need for you? Because if they want something and ask them something they want it at a certain price are two entirely different questions and activate different areas of the brain. And so, benefits you to have that conversation as early as possible. And so
you know, your friend who says, Hey, we charge $5 because I don't know if they pay six to one of those conversations. Say, Hey, Mr. Customer, we build this feature. We're going to charge five. Okay. Go to the next conversation. Hey, we're thinking about charging 10. Go to the next one. Hey, we're thinking about charging 20 and see at which level you get laughed out of the room. You know? And then at some point you're going to have a sense of who said what, like what was different about one context of customer and why they might be willing to pay 20. And the other guy laughed me out of the room when I said five, what's different about those two customer scenarios? Is one of those a better fit for us? What is different about their environment? There's a good joke I heard about fairness. It's like, how much should a crowbar co cost? And it's like, it would be unfair to charge two different people at different prices for crowbar. Well, one guy's peeling nails out of two by fours. The other guy's opening treasure chests. So the guy's opening treasure chests. He's going to be willing to pay a lot yeah. for, for the crowbar. So it, a lot of the pricing conversation comes down to helping to understand what is the difference between customers in their content and what, why would they value your product more in that particular context. And if I feed back to what you said, I love that analogy, right? Three things are going to kill you for a startup. The knife fly is probably the most pressing. If I talk to a hundred startup people a month, I would imagine money is their most pressing concern. I need money. Money is tough. Money is difficult. Like you said, pricing is generally, when you get deep into a company, they've got to be success. You look at their pricing and go, well, geez, you're sitting on a lot of free money here. You could be charging. We should go do a price today. We should go look at this stuff. So yeah, to some extent, I think what you're talking about is really important for startup people to actually start thinking about and getting some of that. Because if your most pressing concern is, you know, I need cash to continue to open my door and you haven't put any thought into what I could actually be charging or how I should be packaging. Because I'm the same as you. When I talk pricing, I don't mean just the dollar number you're putting the actual office. The amount of software companies I look at and I've got, here's my pricing. It's $5 plus $1 for this, $0.08 cents for this, $0.32 cents for that. And doing the things you're talking about, not only are they going to help you with your pricing packaging, but they're going to help you identify product market fit, you know, who the right customer is, who you should be focusing on selling. And if you're early, another thing you often see with early stage companies is they get a customer who pays them good money and then says, I also need this feature, so you should build that for me now. And then this feature, and then all of a sudden you're building for a customer and not for a customer segment. So, you know, this stuff I think is super important for some early stage people to be starting to think through. It's probably, it doesn't get the airwaves that sales or marketing or getting go to market right is, but I think it's equally as important to get right early on. And so, yeah, I think it's a big world. A lot of the stuff you're talking through is there's a lot to do there. Is the first and easiest step to just go and talk to three or four of your customers and be, and effectively socialize what you said. Hey, I'm going to, I'm thinking about building this. Would you pay an extra $5 or something for that? Is that a good way to test, dip your toes into this sort of market, this sort of space? Yeah. So I think, look, you're hinting at something important, I think, or a lot of different important things. So one is, I don't know how it was on your side of the world. I know a lot of entrepreneurs here got hoodwinked by the last 10 years of zero interest rates. And so it became much more important to show fancy metrics than to actually prove a profitable business. And I think we're seeing a lot of that shakeout now of companies that were priced to perfection in the last valuation. And now they're, you know, this is running dry of capital. And I don't know about you, but every week I see a story of three or four companies that are calling, you know, calling it quits. So yesterday I saw Vision, you know, the, the competitor against Figma that was ruling the roost for a while. You know, we were, you know, all of these companies, right. That just never had to consider, look at, at any individual company. I'm not, uh, there's a lot of things that happen in, inside of a company. And so I'm not going to paint, you know, them all with the same brush or say they did anything inherently wrong. 
But I think a lot of people got a lot farther than they maybe otherwise would have without considering how do I raise money for my customers and price to the value my customers are receiving versus expecting to raise money from a next venture capitalist yep. or friends and family round, et cetera. And incentives matter. And if you're not incentivized to think about them, you're not going to think about them and you, know, you find yourself in an unenviable spot. I think the other thing that you're pointing out is pricing is not an event, but it's a process. So one of the core philosophies that I try to engender in folks is I'm not a process junkie. I don't get out of bed every morning because I'm like I'm excited about process and governance. So everything in your business is a process. There's a set of inputs and then there's a set of outputs. And I think pricing is got this weird thing where it's like this, oh, we had this, we, we decided that. on a price and now it's done. We did that thing. And that just doesn't map to the rest of your business. Like your product is changing. Your customers are changing. Your competitors are changing. We're having historic macroeconomic uh, factors are changing, whether it's COVID and downs or record high worldwide inflation or any of these things are changing. And so your price as a reflection of the differentiated value that you provide your customers is always in flux. And so I think there's this, there is this idea that, oh, we did that five years ago. We asked people about pricing and it. And so that's where I would say folks make the first mistake is they don't have it as an internal process with ownership and governance and a way to update it like they do their product, right? Because they've got product managers every day shipping features. They have marketers trying to generate demand for those features. Um, all those things are moving in a dynamic competitive environment. And those that environment begets questions to be asked um, that I just a lot of companies aren't set up to ask in a, a continuous way. I can hand on heart say I was one of those people. Yeah. I've been in business for 10 years. I think we did we did once. In the last year I was there. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But, and it's another good point you make. I mean, there's macroeconomic climate, things have changed. What we see mostly is SaaS companies putting their pricing up because they haven't considered any of this stuff. And right now, most of your customers would be expecting that you're going to hold or go down, but actually to become full action, you take money, everyone's raising their price up. So yeah, you make a really good point in the process, not a once-off set. Then just want to give you a real example here. So people that we deal with mostly are in the construction technology or property technology, right? Industries that haven't really been disrupted all that much like the digital businesses have. So the question we often get asked, there's normally only a big incumbent, like their server base, they charge a big chunk. These are big infrastructure projects, so these guys can charge a million bucks a year for a five-year license, whatever that is. Here I am coming in with something which I think is going to be a category leader. It's a cloud-hosted system. It's brand new to the scene. Where do you even begin? Like the questions you're talking about, but I can go ask these customers, the friends of mine that I've come to know, my industry peers, but they've got no reference point other than the big... big historical business that they've always dealt with. Look at adjacent industries. What's my data point? Where should I go looking for that? Yeah, it's a, so it's, that's quite a meaty question. There's not one, uh, there's not one perfect answer. I'll say that upfront. I think it's a little bit of a mistake to consider. I've had, I've been in client situations where they've 
basically proposed the same thing of there's a big lazy incumbent competitor they haven't their product runs on windows 95 they haven't updated uh since those days <laughs> there's a guy feeding a hamster in the back <laughs> room to keep the, keep a server running somewhere the question is, is that there's a spectrum need to think through right because i think in that spectrum you put all your focus on your competition and you've defined your market in terms of your competition i think it's healthy to keep an eye on your competition i don't look ceos say things to be to, to set a point of view right i think jeff bezos is most famously was like oh i don't care about the competition i only care about my customers i don't really think he he meant that in, in an absolute um, i completely go i'm more on the bezos side which is I'm obsessive about my customers. I want to keep an eye on my competition. I want to understand that because if we don't, we take the risk of divorcing ourselves from the reality of the marketplace that our customers, right? Our, our, cut, our prospects are, are shopping around, right? They're, they're looking at what else is available, right? So we have to understand, to be coherent, we have to understand what's going on. But I don't think defining the market in terms of an old lazy incumbent is necessarily the, you know, the right mental model. What you will tend to find is if we flip it and look more at the customer side, again, who we're going to charge, there's going to be a sub-segment of the market, whether that's people who are existing customers of that old you know, big iron system, or maybe they're newer entrants that have inched along with DIY solutions or something else that are going to be very hungry for your solution. So the idea is, what is the segment of customers that cares most about what you're bringing to bear? And there's a little bit of an element of, if you guys are familiar with Clayton Christensen, Innovator's Dilemma, this is the kind of the classic Innovator's Dilemma problem where you know, the big incumbents, whether it's Kodak, right, who is, oh, digital photography, we don't need to worry about it, right? Because the digital camera, you know, we're not, well, then all of a sudden their entire business goes, you know, overnight. And you just take the idea of like digital cameras is like it started in a very narrow use case. They didn't go directly after the professional photographers who were sitting in dark rooms. You know, like those people were not the right market, right? They're not going to dislodge those folks. There's, those folks aren't hungry for a new way to do things. Instead, we want to figure out what is the differentiated value that we offer? Who cares most about what we're, how we're approaching the problem? And I think setting ourselves up with an entire frame of, hey, big, we're going to go displace big iron. It just puts too much weight on the hands of this. It's just not, I don't think your customers, because your customers aren't waking up in the morning, identifying themselves. Like, I don't know about you. Like, I don't know. I don't wake up and say, I'm a Miro customer. I'm a Trello customer. I'm a Jira Atlassian customer. Like, I, that's how your customers are thinking. They're thinking like, I've got a, I've got a job to do and I'm going to try to find the best tool to do it. Either my existing tools aren't getting the work done and I'm dissatisfied in some way, or I'm just moved into this space and all of a sudden I've got a job doing, I'm out in the market for a solution. Look, I think both of those, again, point more to towards understanding the different segments that exist in the market, understanding the differentiated value you provide. And then again, it's the conversations around, this is how, for example, can you have a, a disruptive pricing model slash business model that completely changes the... Uh, competitive landscape, right? This was the end run that Google did around Microsoft with Google Workspace, their office bundle. Hey, they've got this giant 
monetizing business model that can subsidize, right? They don't have to sell yeah. you know, against like Microsoft is trying to monetize you know, their, their software directly and they can end run around them because they've got a different way to charge that, you know, the other incumbent can't compete with. I think that's where you can create some innovative thinking around ways that you can monetize, right? The other guys are saying like, hey, it's $5 million up front, right? You got a perpetual license. This is a reason why subscription became that much more amenable because customers are like, oh, I can get value today for a tenth or less of the price. And even just going to a subscription on the same sort of price metric is often enough to dislodge these incumbents, but there could be other ways, right? That you enable that, right? Just the amount of innovation that's happening with our ability to monitor different metrics of success, right? Before it was, all right, how many servers is the software running on? How many users? And now we see so many other ways that we can charge, right? That are more aligned to the value and we can uh, create a differentiated offering uh, through the way we charge as well. And is that something you get people to look at? Hey, I'm selling to large enterprise. So there's only so many of them that I can sell to. I'm coming in, old income. Oh, ignore the competition. It's a large enterprise sales. So I've got to get them right. I don't want to sell it to them too cheap because I'll probably be locked in for four or five year contract and they're extremely large. So it might be harder to renegotiate the things. Do you get customers to look at Okay, so if that is your customer and this is what your software is doing, look, what benefit are you providing that customer? What are they saving in terms of time, money, effort, ability to do the job? Does that give you some guidance as to how you can justify a pricing number that you're giving them if it's a number issue you're looking at? Yeah, it's a good question. I think this leads into a conversation around what are called pricing orientations. So pricing orientation is... How is pricing done around here? What are the set of factors that we consider in a pricing decision? And often these are summarized in what's called the three C's of pricing, which is cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing, and customer value-based pricing, often just truncated to value-based pricing. But marketers are are the three C's and our four P's and all the fun acronyms. So two C's and a V isn't quite as catchy from a marketing (laughs) perspective. So why do I bring that up? Because cost-based pricing, competition-based pricing, customer value-based pricing, I view it as a journey as a ladder, you cannot just jump into customer value-based pricing. It's sort of customer value-based pricing is the North star. It's a destination to be sought after, but never to be reached. I sit on a meditation cushion someday. I hope to be enlightened, but I'm definitely not there yet. So there's a long road, but you don't get to just skip there. You have to really understand, okay, what are the incremental costs I have? And this goes back to the early stage, maybe from a P&L perspective, I'm not worried about being EBITDA profitable or net income profitable, I better understand what my unit economics are. Yeah. I better, like if I'm selling $20 bills for $10, I'm going to go out of business real quick. I think a lot of these companies that are going out of business now realize it just doesn't, because there's going to be a large fixed cost of sales and marketing and fixed cost of development, right? And so maybe from a P&L perspective, I need to bring extra money in the door. Hey, if this thing does get to scale on a unit basis, we are profitable. So keeping those type of metrics in mind, early on are important. Again, then going from cost-based pricing, layering in something like, okay, what is what competitive alternatives, right? We want to understand what is available to our market, right? Now, I learned a long time ago in the product management, product strategy world, don't get too enamored with your competitors. Hey, we released uh, version 10.0. Here's all the new features. And you as the product manager sitting there looking at, oh man, they released this and this. You don't know if those were just the fever dream of the CEO because he, he played golf with his buddy and his buddy was like, oh, you guys should build X, Y, right? You don't know if the product manager was, you know, I don't know, spent a little bit too much time on the beach that it was just like had to write some sort of spec. Like you have no idea if anyone did their homework and very similarly with competitive price, it's important to keep your eye on it, but also don't put incredible stock in it. And I see a lot of companies are just like, well, we'll just look at what competitors 
are doing and then price to that. And look, if pricing is monetization is there's only three ways to grow a software company, acquisition, monetization, or retention. And I don't know anybody that would outsource their acquisition strategy to their competition's CEO, right? So why would you do that with your pricing? But it's important to understand what, you know, where that is. And then understanding customer value. Obviously, this is the most difficult. It's not widely done because it is so difficult. It does require a fair amount of rigor. You can't just, why? You can't just go and tell your customer, hey, we're going to make you a 10x ROI. If we were all, uh, yeah, because they're going to be like, show me, prove it. Because the last sales guy was in here told me the same thing. And I didn't believe him either. So what does that mean if you're early stage? You probably don't have the proof point yet. Or maybe maybe you have a little bit of data, but it's not robust. You've got customers in different stages of deployment. And look, I think it's one of these things that we want to understand proxies of customer value. We want to understand longer term how customers are using um what we call value metrics, the metrics by which customer will judge the success of our product. So are they judging it by increases of revenue or by clicks on their website or conversions into their shopping cart? Like how are they measuring it and really understanding that? We may not be able to prove you know, to you know, a new prospect, hey, if you come by us, on average, our customers get a what ROI percent, et cetera. Those things are important. I think they're data points that you should be aware of and be interested in because look, even if you're just writing early stage, like customer case studies, right? Those customer case studies are built around those same things. Now, whether or not you can justify your price on that is, is a level of uh, also organizational rigor that I think you can't just have a pricing team go into a closet, uh, create, be like, oh, here's this ROI calculator we built and then ship it out because if the rest of the organization doesn't buy into it, if a sales and customer success and renewals doesn't buy into it, as soon as a customer yes. calls their bluff, they're going to fold and just revert back to like, I've got this much room to discount and they're not going to be able to have that conversation. So it, there's, there's a level of maturity that is required to, to be at that level. But look, unit economics, understanding what your competition is doing, and then you're really understanding you know the goals your customers are trying to get to. And I think you layer those in over time. It's a, it's a journey. It's a, not a destination. And again, it's a process. I love it. It's a journey. Dan, last one from me. Going back to what you said earlier, you said don't give it away for free. There have been many examples. Dropbox is one. So why not give it away for free? Because a lot would tell you that, hey, if you get the user base to a certain point, then you can charge even 10% of the users, set them out. And that's a better business than trying to charge all of them up front. What have been your big learning? Yeah, it's my, my favorite soapbox question. Let me stretch first. Hold on. So when I started uh, at business school, I got a theoretical grounding and pricing there. And then my internship I did for a really successful Silicon Valley startup. And this was actually one of the questions I helped answer for them. There was a question on the CEO's desk of should they pursue a freemium strategy? And so I I looked into it pretty intensely uh, that summer, among other projects I worked on. And TLDR, do not recommend freemium as an approach. Now, why not? So freemium is a monetization model where I want to be very clear when we're talking about freemium that some people will get different scenarios intermixed. It's like Facebook is not freemium. Facebook is a multi-sided network of which you as the user are being monetized for your eyeball uh, and the advertisers are paying, right? So that's not freemium. Also, uh, sometimes there are products that are free 
they have like an ad supported version. I think Spotify is an example. I don't have a premium user Spotify, so I don't even know if they still have an ad supported uh, version, but I don't think that is freemium because there is a business model there. It's ad supported on that side. So there's actual monetization happening and there's scale reasons, et cetera. So the true freemium is, Hey, we're just giving things away for free. There is a economic argument uh, around where is an experience good. Um, that's a class of type of good that exists in the economy. Uh, you could think of a haircut as an experience good. You often don't know how valuable you find a haircut until you, you actually have one. Software is very similar. So our perceived value of the particular good in question changes as we experience it. So in general, my advice to people is anytime someone recommends freemium to you, a free trial is a better answer. A time-limited 14 to 30-day free trial ends up with similar benefits, but there's a, a ticking confuse at which somebody has to make a decision. Is this software valuable for me or not? And look, there's ways that, like, hey, they need more time. They have a more complex buying process. Sales is capable of creating extension keys for a trial, right? But there's a, at least a conversation and there's a decision point to be had. Why is the bulk free, a freemium approach, not a good fit? It's funny you mentioned Dropbox because my, my friend, another pricing strategist, Rob Litterst, actually just posted something on LinkedIn the other day that showed, look, the and uh, from my research, I've seen about a one to 3% of free users convert to paid. The Dropbox data he posted about, I think it was about like 2.1%. So it was right in that, it was right in that range. What does that mean? In a B2B scenario, it almost never works because your total addressable market is not there. Like you need like potentially millions of customers in order to make it work. Also, it tends to create a bunch of friction inside of an organization. Why does that happen? It's really hard to get net new customers. So, you know, if you're CMO, your growth marketing team or out there trying to you know, find new people through SEO, paid search, whatever mechanisms you're using, at one point you turn over, hey guys, why are we working so hard? We got 99% of our users are sitting over here on our free plan. If only we just tried a little bit, it's, it's like if I could sell a toothbrush to every person in China, it would be, I'd be super rich. It's a mirage. Those people are not going to convert. And so what ends up happening is not only the, as a monetization strategy overall, it, it's failing, but then there's a bunch of friction inside the organization. There's a bunch of effort to try. Well, let's just, what if we just put this side on, put this part of the feature on the free side. And there's a bunch of senior level conversations and product managers and engineers involved in trying to just, oh, we'll just tweak the onboarding a little bit more. If only they saw the value a little bit more as, as a free user, then they would convert. And it's just illusory. In general, what I've found is that the those free users who convert to paid, they would have converted to paid on a free trial timetable anyway. And everyone else, going back to our earlier conversation, they're almost in a different market segment. Like they don't look the same. I think there's a, I worked with a company before, B2B SaaS, they, they have a business software offering. And if you went, looked at their free users, the vast majority of their free users were using it for personal use. And so you're like, why is that a problem? Because if I go to Trustpilot or one of these review sites, you go read their reviews and it's like, hey, this really helped my kids with their homework. Okay, you're a serious B2B buyer and you start looking at like user reviews. You're like, what is this? What is this software? Like somebody's using it for, to help their kid with their homework? What is this thing? So it pollutes your messaging, all that work that your team is doing to refine your messaging. And then as well, you tend to get uh, that flood of back enters the stream back to your 
product and engineering organizations without all of the identification of, hey, this is from not your target user. It was like, hey, a user asked for X. And you see that 99 to one, because 99% of them are the free users. You see 99 of the requests from people who are never to convert to one from your actual users. And look, if you, you know, people come to the website, or you're talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, like you probably identify that, but people are all sitting in Slack rooms. And a lot of times these companies offer support Right. And so some support agents is like, hey, I heard this good idea from a user that, you know, and throws it into the engineering slack. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, we should. And all of a sudden now there's a bunch of activity spun up around building something for not uh, a customer that's a fit that's ever going to pay. Um, I'm going to cut myself there because I could probably go on for another 30 minutes as to why freemium is bad. But that's uh, that's my rant for today. Um, it's good that we, we, we could probably do a follow up session just on that. Ask, uh, ask, uh, ask, ask the special one. Tactical question. Yeah, so this is my special question, Dan. So when you do decide to hang up your boots, or shall we say cleats, I don't, what do you want to be known for? Man, that's a really good question. Look, I, I'm a big believer in, I don't remember who said it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the attribution, but it's uh, people don't, won't remember you for what you did, they'll remember you for how you made them feel. You know, my, my goal is hopefully I make the people I have the chance to interact with on my short time in this world feel better than they did before. That's a good answer. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. And for folks who want to connect with me, I'm happy to do that on LinkedIn. Um, and I've also got my own podcast, SaaS Scaling Secrets, where I talk to scale-up CEOs of SaaS, B2B SaaS companies. You know, if you want to, if you want to connect with me, happy to do that on LinkedIn. And, or you could check me out on wherever podcasts are found at SaaS Scaling Secrets.